In the days of the Apostle Paul, he anticipated the world very much as we experience it today. And his damning description was built around the phrase, the last days. Here's how he defined the situation in 2 Timothy 3. But understand this, in the last days, terrible times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers. And the list goes on. He said, from such turn away. In Paul's long list of characteristics of the end times, I want especially to draw a line under to emphasize the word slanderous, for that certainly encapsulates so much of the attitude of our overly litigious society, which has become entangled in a blizzard of regulations, people suing and countersuing, bold-faced lies endlessly repeated by media and slandering of people unashamedly. The only clear voice in this cacophony of noise will be the spirit-led believer in Jesus. Christians seem to be instinctively experiencing a check in our spirit before being tempted to engage in devilish slander. But our Jewish elders in the faith also have much to teach us. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Darg. We must read our Bibles like people digging for treasure. Most amazing of all is the fact and good news that the Lord is soon coming back to take charge of this world that's become more chaotic by the day. Speaking recently at his Shepherds Conference, Pastor John MacArthur exhorted his fellow pastors not to neglect the important subject of the end times. You see, the better people understand that the rapture is imminent, the more likely we'll be to live in light of 1 John chapter 3, which says whoever has this hope of the rapture is going to be watchful and keep himself pure. We need to live in the light of the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus, so I refuse to cheat people out of this blessed hope. We need the blessed hope of the Lord's soon appearing because life is becoming a daily chore just to keep up with all the paperwork. To exist in this world, we have to deal on a daily basis with legal forms, disclaimers, and lawsuit-protecting insurance. So many trivial and commonplace matters end up in courts. And according to an article in the New York Times, the USA is already the most litigious society in the world spending roughly $310 billion a year, or about $1,000 per person on litigation. And about half of the sum is mostly spent on legal fees. Hardly a day goes by that we don't hear of the dramatic increase in the number of lawsuits and of the latest multi-million dollar verdict of crowded courthouses and just too much all-consuming litigation. People are suing one another with abandonment. And so much trouble and heartache could have been avoided by 
bridled tongues. Well, Paul the Apostle in 2 Timothy 3 informs us that malicious gossip and slander will increase into the end of the age. Listen carefully to what Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, about the last days. He said men are going to be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful and arrogant revilers, disobedient to parents, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable slanderers. Some translations say malicious gossips, and the list goes on. Well, whether the word is translated as slanderers, false accusers, or malicious gossips, the Greek original is a much, much stronger word. It's number 1228 in Strong's Concordance of New Testament words, diabolus, meaning the devil. So Paul predicted that people will literally behave like the devil. Devilish behavior will characterize the end times, and we certainly cannot deny that it's happening. As I reported last week, there's an inordinate upsurge in interest in Satan and demonic computer games and so forth. Well, it's interesting, I learned in my studies this week that slanderer or malicious gossip is the exact same word that's also translated devil in John 6, 70, a verse where Jesus described his traitor Judas as a devil. Interchangeably, this word diabolus tells us that Judas was a slanderer, a malicious gossip, a false accuser. And we need to know how much God hates this sin. We must learn and have the holy reverential fear of God when considering the consequences of slander. I don't think the average person has any idea how damning a sin slander is. But in Proverbs 6, in verses 16 to 19, we find this admonition. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. So not only is slander sinful, but also God says he views it as an abomination. That's a word we don't hear in normal conversations, but the definition of an abomination is a vile, shameful, or a detestable action. And it's associated, by the way, with the Antichrist. A person who collects gossip violates the general prohibition in Leviticus 19.16, which states, You shall not go about as a talebearer amongst your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Even though this transgression of talebearing isn't punished by scourging or death, it is a severe sin and can cause the death of many. Why do you think God holds such a strong hatred for the sin of slander and sowing discord? Well, consider what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 22.1 concerning the value of a person's name. He said a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. In Ecclesiastes 7.1, he said a good name is better than precious ointment. Since a good name and a person's reputation are such valuable commodities that can be ruined through malice, God considers it evil and he hates it. 
A slanderer is either a wayward person or one who is completely unconverted. Furthermore, in the New Testament, James 3, 6 tells us that the practice of slander is set on fire from hell itself. We have to be careful that we don't become tired or exhausted so that our guard is let down. And then we can regrettably lash out and say things in an unbridled manner in a way that we normally wouldn't behave. Yes, we believers can be careless. However, those who deliberately, willfully engage in slandering other people are being led by demons. So says James 3.6. And also James 3.8 warns that no human being can tame the tongue by ourselves. That's why we need the indwelling, restraining power of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, the tongue will be a restless evil, full, the Bible says, of deadly poison. Without the Spirit's help, the tongue's fire easily becomes unmanageable. Consider what a terrific power there is in fire. One tiny neglected spark may start a flame that will consume an entire city. The great fire of London in 1666 began in a little wooden shop near London Bridge, but it engulfed the city. Also, we know that great forest fires begin with just a little spark. So what are we to do? Galatians 5.22 says that the fruit of the Spirit includes self-control, which is exactly what we need to put out the fire of the tongue. And Colossians 4.6 admonishes, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. You see, every day we have opportunities to respond with grace or with regret. May the Lord help us. Let us welcome the Pentecostal tongues of fire, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon us to purify any evil tongue set on fire by hell. God's Word teaches us of the power of speech. And we frequently need to be reminded. God created the world through his words. Never forget that. He spoke and God said, let there be light. And there was. Recently in the annual cycle of Torah readings, we came to the portion in Leviticus 19 in which the Jewish sages have interpreted the affliction of skin disease as a specific punishment for the sin of speaking Lashon Hara. That's a Hebrew phrase meaning literally the evil tongue. And because it's such an important biblical precept, the rabbis speak of Lashon Hara very frequently. They even have a title for an habitual gossiper, a master of the evil tongue. What a terrible thought to be a master assassin with one's tongue. By contrast, in the famous Proverbs 31 passage of the virtuous woman, it's said that the law of kindness is on her tongue. Lashon hara is not just gossip, but the rabbis say it also includes speaking disparagingly against others. The best known example is found in Numbers chapter 10, where Moses' sister Miriam is afflicted with a skin disease for speaking ill about her brother Moses and his wife. In the book of Numbers, we read that Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses regarding the Cushite woman he had married. According to tradition, the woman in question was none other than 
Zipporah, his wife. The Torah continues to say that Miriam and Aaron were not actually grumbling about her, but rather about their brother Moses. They said, has the Lord spoken only to Moses? Hasn't he spoken to us too? Well, that was pride speaking. And sickness was the punishment, rectified only through quarantine, personal reflection, and sincere repentance. The Holy One, blessed be he, said, since this person sought to create division between man and wife or between a person and his neighbor, she will be punished by being divided from the community, which is why the Bible stipulated, let him live alone outside the camp. Then, when the offender learns to speak properly, they can re-enter community. This disease in the Bible in Hebrew is called tasarot and has been frequently mistranslated, so the rabbis say, as leprosy. Psalm 34 is the best commentary on this episode. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. It follows that to misuse or abuse language, to sow suspicion and dissension is not only destructive, it's a sacrilege in God's eyes. That, according to the sages, is why the speaker of Lashon Hara was smitten by something like leprosy and forced to live as a pariah outside the camp. Well, I believe in preparation for the appearing of the Lord, the body of Messiah is purifying ourselves in watching what we say. If we speak Leshon Hara, evil speech against others, the Bible teaches that we are literally destroying ourselves and them. The Holy Spirit will check us to bridle our tongues. Proverbs 18.21 is a key verse in this regard, and every believer should know it. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it and indulge it will eat of its fruit and bear the consequences of their words. Moses ben Mamon, commonly known as Mamonides and also referred to by the acronym Ramban, was a Sephardic Jewish philosopher and one of the most important figures in the history of Torah scholarship. In his ethical writings, the Ramban wrote that Lashon Hara destroys three people, the one about whom it is spoken, and also the listener and the speaker. The Ramban wrote that there's much more serious side to tale-bearing. He wrote that the evil tongue relates deprecating facts about a colleague, even if the facts are true. So Lashon Haram doesn't refer just to the invention of lies in the defamation of character. One who speaks Lashon Hara is someone who relates uncomplimentary things, like this is what so-and-so has done, or his parents were such-and-such, or this is what I've heard about him, and so forth. So to sum up, the Jewish sages said there are three sins for which retribution is exacted from a person in this world, and for which he is denied a portion in the world to come. Idol worship, Forbidden sexual relations and murder, but Lashon Hara is equivalent to them all. And as if that's not enough, the Ramban warned against speaking Lashon Hara in jest, as if no malice is intended. 
Also to be condemned is someone who speaks Lashon Hara about a colleague slyly, pretending to be innocently telling a story. While he or she is reproved, then they lie and excuse themselves by saying, well, I didn't know that the story was harmful. Rabbi Israel Meir HaKohen Kagan was a 19th century rabbi from Poland, commonly known as the Hafez Chaim, which is also the name of his famous book about guarding one's tongue. Hafez Chaim means, who is the man who desires life? It's a blessing to read this book, which is readily available on the internet. It's a devotional teaching how to guard one's tongue from slander and other evil. The title is based on Psalm 34, verses 12 to 13. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. So the Bible teaches that a bridal tongue extends life, whereas a life can be cut short by loose lips and lying. Well, as I mentioned, the Jewish sages identify the biblical condition that affects skin, garments, and the walls of a house. Not so much as an illness, but as a punishment for evil speech. There's an old children's pouty saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. I remember saying that as a child, but I instinctively knew it wasn't true because words do hurt. The fact is, verbal abuse is very harmful, and even some young people have been known to commit suicide due to bullying. This whole teaching on the tongue brings to mind one of my favorite verses from Psalm 19, verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The late chief rabbi of the UK, Jonathan Sachs, was a prolific writer, and in one of his articles, he asked why evil speech was pinpointed and not some other sin as being so terrible. Why should speaking be worse than, say, physical violence? Jonathan Sachs wrote that the sages go to remarkable lengths to emphasize the seriousness of the evil tongue. It is, they say, as bad as all three cardinal sins together idol worship, bloodshed, and illicit sexual relations. Whoever speaks with an evil tongue, they say, is as if he has denied God. The sages also rule that it's forbidden even to dwell in the vicinity of any of those with an evil tongue, and all the more to sit with them and to listen to their words. Well, Judaism, like other religions, has holy places, holy people, sacred times, and consecrated festivals. However, what made Judaism different is that it is supremely a religion of holy words. After all, with words, God created the universe. Through words, he communicated with mankind and gave us this book of books. In Judaism, language itself is holy. The Targum translates Genesis 2-7, and man became a living creature as man became a speaking spirit. That is why Lashon Hara, the use of language to do harm, is not merely a minor offense. It's a kind of desecration. And all great theologians know that we humans create worlds with our words. Therefore, when we speak disparagingly of others, we diminish them and we also diminish ourselves and we defile the listener. 
That's why the sages take evil speech so seriously and why they regard an unruly tongue as the gravest of sins and why they believe that the entire phenomenon of a kind of leprosy on the skin, mildew in clothes and in houses was God's way of making the sin public and stigmatizing it. Certainly we know that one day every person is going to give account of how we have used our tongues, including every word. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verses 36 to 37, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now then, how do we do spiritual warfare in a grossly litigious society that our world has become? The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once wrote that the best way to deal with slander is to pray about it. God will either remove it or remove the sting from it. A word to the wise, our own attempts at clearing ourselves are usually failures. Let's be still and let the Lord, our advocate, plead our cause. My favorite verse to decree in this regard is Isaiah 54, 17. It's a perfect verse to come against evil speech. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment, you shall condemn. For this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Hallelujah. Interestingly, Leviticus chapter 14 explains the ritual for a leper in Bible days to be cleansed. The healing process required two live birds to be brought to the priest. Spring water was placed in an earthenware vessel over which one of the birds, traditionally recognized as being a sparrow, is slaughtered and into which the blood is allowed to run. Then the priest dips the remaining bird and other items into the bloodied water and sprinkles the afflicted person seven times. The live bird is freed into the open field. There's much speculation about the ceremony's meaning. One commentator noted that the main element of the sacrifice, the birds, remind the penitent person that like the birds' senseless chatter, sin was senseless chattering. And through senseless chattering, he has killed the public image of a person with slander. And even if the person's image survives, that person is now marked with a blood stain. A modern version would be mud slinging. Another commentary notes that the two birds symbolize two types of speech, negative and positive. It's not enough to refrain from evil speech, which can kill. We need also to seize opportunities to say and do that which is good and right. The two identical birds symbolizing our speech represent the past and the future. The bird of the past is sacrificed because of our sins. For this we repent. But the bird of the future is set free, signifying the potential for positive change. Let's take more opportunities to say good things about people. In the New Testament, the little book of James, the half-brother of Jesus, has a lot to say about the tongue. It's helpful to keep in mind that James was brought up in the same household as Jesus. James mentions the fretful, scolding tongue, and some people are always complaining. 
Even if blessings come, they murmur and find fault, even with the providences of God. When we studied the history of the Israelites in the wilderness, time after time, they were plagued and judged by God due to their whining and complaining. Falsehood is another grievous tongue sin, and in this I would include all kinds of lying, including the lie by implication, as well as outright malignant lies. Even in what would pass for polite society today, there's too much off-color talk. Many newscasts have to be bleeped because of coarse language, which has become way too common. Another tongue sin is boasting. James 3.5 says the tongue is a little member, but boast of great things. Boasting results from an overestimation of ourselves and an underestimation of others. It betrays weakness, littleness, ignorance, vanity, self-conceit, the commentaries say, arrogance and presumption. And then there's flattery. That's the insincere desire to say something to secure somebody's favor. And last but not least, there's the sin of profanity, the taking of God's name in vain. God have mercy on all of us. In closing today, I want to look at the example of Jesus, how he controlled his speech at the most difficult time at his death. Besides the excessive scourging he received before his crucifixion, he endured the most excruciating agony from his hands and feet nailed to the cross, making it impossible to move into any comfortable position for a single second. Such was the humiliating, agonizing death that Jesus was willing to die for us. For six long hours he hung suspended in agony before a gazing, mocking crowd, naked, bleeding from head to toe, his skull also pierced with thorns, his back lacerated, his hands and feet torn through with nails, while being reviled by those who passed by. Yet he did not revile in return or try to justify himself. That was the high level of his faith in God's vindication. Let's often read the story of the Lord's cross and passion, remembering that all his horrific sufferings were born without a single complaint. But instead, he spoke words of forgiveness, he gave instructions for the care of his mother, and ministered salvation to the repentant thief crucified next to him. In all his words, Jesus was perfect. To the very last, declares John 14, 30, Satan found nothing in him and certainly had no claim on him. So let our words be modeled after his example. Now, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to share with me on social media. I also invite you to visit our website at exploits.tv where you can click online to receive our weekly email, learn about our Holy Land teaching tours, and you can watch all our videos 24-7. Don't forget, download our free Jerusalem Channel app where you can also view our video library. And please subscribe to our Jerusalem Channel YouTube site and my blogs at Substack. Until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Dark. Maranatha. Shalom. In my years of ministry in the Middle East, I've had deep spiritual conversations with many followers of Islam who shared with me one overriding experience. They all had, at one time or another, a dream or a vision about Jesus. And when they do, they have no doubt who he is or why he appeared to them. 
It's been my joy to document some of those heart-to-heart encounters of Jesus in the Muslim world in my book, Miracles Among Muslims, The Jesus Visions. This has been out of print since its first edition in 2006. But now, for the first time, we've made it available to read as an ebook. You can also purchase the new paperback edition. Check it out in the bookshop at Amazon website. And if you have a heart for the Muslim world, I believe this book will be an eye-opening encouragement and great blessing.